I'm Ryan Landrosif. Welcome to Let's Think Digital. People don't usually think that governments are particularly agile or innovative. Let's face it, when most folks think of bureaucracy, they think about lifers punching a clock, resistant to change, and happy with routine. In the political realm, one of the easiest way to score points is to dump on public servants. But I think that's unfair. When I was working in the federal government here in Canada, helping to set up what became the Canadian Digital Service, I came across so many people working in government who wanted nothing more than to shake up the status quo and to innovate in order to be able to serve their fellow citizens better. For these passionate professionals, their eyes were wide open to some of the downsides of the big bureaucratic machine, but they knew at their core that government has to be there to solve the big challenges of today and tomorrow. Of course, the desire to change things is one thing, knowing how to put that desire into action is another. So on this episode, we want to tackle the question, is innovation something that can be taught? And is this a skill set that public servants need to learn? Our guests this week certainly think so. Robin Scott is the CEO and founder of Apolitical, a global learning platform dedicated to supporting public servants in building 21st century governments that work for people and the planet. Apolitical has tens of thousands of members from around the world learning, sharing, and building connections. And Robin has a lot to say about what she's been seeing in her time running this platform. Have a listen. Uh, Robin is the co-founder and CEO of Apolitical, um, an organization based out of the UK, but with global reach, doing some really interesting work in the space around building public sector capacity for the digital era and to deal with modern challenges. Robin, really glad you could come join us today, even though I know you're you're battling a bit of a head cold. So thank you for for fighting through that to come join for the conversation. Um, would love to have you just you know introduce yourself a bit and tell us a little bit about Apolitical and what you do. Fantastic. Um, well, it's an absolute pleasure to be here, even with the cold. My voice sounds strange at the best of times, being a product of the UK, New Zealand and Botswana. And now I've got <laughs> the, the, the gravel and notes of a, a cold added to it. But great pleasure um, to be here. I'm, um, as you say, co-founder and CEO of Apolitical. Our mission at Apolitical is to build 21st century governments that work for people and the planet. Um, so digital and data are threads that run deeply through that. Um, and we are a network and learning platform for the public sector, the whole government stack. So uh, local government right through to multilateral, because we believe that um, actually some of the biggest opportunities are by building connective tissue between the layers of government and um Right now, we are used by about 200,000 um, public servants and policymakers in 160 different countries to wow. find and share best practice and to upskill themselves on 21st century challenges uh, with short online courses. Wow, no, that, it's impressive, and 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 Robin, you know, Apolitical has been around since around 2015, right? And and I think it's it's quite impressive the growth you've kind of seen since that time. Um, you know, you mentioned that that Apolitical is a learning platform, right? I mean, at, at its core, Apolitical is trying to, to to kind of spark learning. What are the types of of kind of skill sets and areas that you're seeing there's there's the most demand for amongst public servants? 
Yeah. So as you say, we we took our first baby steps back in um, 2015, really, really just an idea, then um, launched a platform in 2017 and have been building since. And it's been a really exciting time to build an organization like Apolitical doing what we're doing because the context in government has shifted so much. When when we started, the questions we got, the absurd, naive questions from outside of government was like, are there any innovators in government who would want to share best practice? You know, government isn't interested in learning um, some of the, the classic um, sort of put downs of government. And since then, we've obviously gone through these um, enormous um, shifts, technological shifts, geopolitical shifts, and governments are hungrier than ever to learn and adopt new ways of working. And the world writ large has kind of woken up to the fact that governments are critical to the rest of society running effectively. You know, witness um, COVID, witness the the debate now about the regulation of AI, etc. So that's been that's been the time we've spanned, um, which has been very interesting. In terms of themes, so as I said, we have this um, ambition to build 21st century governments. And the way we focus our work to enable that is around four pillars, which we consider to be the four critical pillars of effective 21st century governments. Those are digital and data, climate and sustainability, equity, equality, and inclusion. And the fourth one is a bit of a catch-all, but we call it just 21st century government, which includes things like human-centered design, citizen engagement, agile governance, leadership, et cetera, the tools of a, a modern public servant. And those four pillars are really interesting because it, you can, you should be incorporating the thinking that relates to them in almost anything you're doing in governments today. If you think about any big policy initiative, it's probably got digital data, it's probably got a climate and sustainability angle, it's probably got equity, equality and inclusion, and it probably relies on some agile ways of working, etc. So those really are, are mainstreamed across um, any training we're developing on the platform. Um, they tend to be where our conversations from our community aggregate around, you know, we see so much interest um, across those topics. Um, of course, there's plenty more that we we cover, but those really form the pillars. Yeah, well, and, and that, you know, as you say, that that intersectionality between those different pillars, I, th I think is an interesting part of that story, right? Um, because, you know, historically, in my experience, too, back when I was in government, now that I see it outside doing, you know, some similar capacity building work to, to the work that you do at Apolitical, you know, we tended to think about those domains sometimes as, as being off in their own silos. And, and I think to your point, I mean, the, the, the complexity of modern policy challenges really requires public servants to stretch themselves beyond some of those traditional boundaries a hundred percent and you know back to the the problem space that we got excited about when we founded a political i founded it with a former u.s public servant uh, lisa witter it was the fact that you've got the world's one of the world's most um significant workforces certainly one of its most powerful and one of its largest left behind by tech and product innovation hmm. and working in silos so silos, um, certainly silos between countries, but huge silos within government itself, sometimes within departments. And that comes at an enormous cost. McKinsey actually um, put a figure on it in 2017. 
and worked out that if governments just did what was already working elsewhere, so this is this is nothing new, this is status quo best mm -hmm. practice, it would unlock $3.5 trillion a year wow. of savings for society. Um, and that's that's what galvanizes us. Like, how do we use um, network intelligence of this global public sector community to unlock that incredible value? And a lot of that is about um, intersectionality and um, thinking in terms of win-wins, multiple dimensions of policymaking. Some of it is structural, right? Some of it is to do with misaligned incentives between departments that we can't have direct leverage over fixing. But a lot of it is just about connecting people to each other um, yep. more swiftly, more organically. There's so much tacit knowledge in government. Um, there's so much movement in government between departments that finding a way to keep people connected um, and stop the loss of institutional knowledge is is really critical. Yeah, I mean, that that connective tissue and that, that kind of networked effect in government is, is incredibly powerful. But as you said, I, I find the reality is, you know, a lot of public servants, particularly those who are in kind of transformation roles, tend to frankly just not have that many free hours in the day. It's tough to kind of make that part of the practice. And I will say it's something that I appreciate about the approach Apolitical has taken. Uh, even myself, I've benefited from using the platform and connecting with public servants around the world who I wouldn't have had, you know, an easy opportunity to meet otherwise and are, are you finding that's become a big use case for the platform I mean obviously you have courses and learning you often you offer but are you seeing the public servants are actually using it for kind of a more informal networking and, and best practice sharing uh, approach a hundred percent and we also design that informal networking and best practice sharing into our courses so all our learning is social because learning is so much better if it's about more than just the content, but it's about the experience, it's about the community you build while you're going through a course, because that's where you make the jump to culture change and workforce transformation, right? So we think about learning in quite an expansive way, and we wire social through everything we do. So in our courses, they infuse by case studies and user testing from our community. You're learning, so you're learning from your peers, and then you're learning alongside your peers. You're doing lots of practical exercises. And it, it was interesting. We ran a series of um, courses for um, an agency in Canada, which was quite distributed. And one of the biggest takeaways they had was the the social and community benefits of. Do, having a shared learning experience that brought together people from disparate parts of the um, department and helped them identify ways they could collaborate better. So that's kind of how social infuses the more formal side of learning. But 100% on the informal side, um, the, the the kind of organic um, collisions, what we're seeing a lot um around we, we we run a lot of events for our community and there's a lot of connection on those live events and discussion we always structure them so that what the speakers are saying is um is no less important than what than what's been said on the chat but um we've recently released a new um q a feature and we built that because there's this demand in government to often get really quick specific answers to questions because public servants are so busy and because you've got this paradox where government kind of works slowly from the outside but every, anyone who's been on the inside knows that a lot of stuff actually happens at quite short notice and and, yep. and answers are needed in a, in a week's time or a few days time so with this feature we wanted to say okay how can we quickly 
get an answer out to the community, get a question out to the community, get an answer back in like a day or two max. But off the back of questions and answers, we're seeing people connecting and um, a huge appetite to do more of that. It's a really difficult challenge um, because profiles, and you will know this, anyone listening who's in government will know this, the profiles of people don't necessarily tell you who you need to speak to. Right. It is not as simple as saying, okay, that's the buyer. Everyone knows that they're, they're the power brokers, they're the nodal people, they're the people who've worked on projects that aren't visible at the profile level. So we're thinking a lot about how we can use people's answers to questions um, to help direct and nudge people together. We're, we're doing some really exciting work in the um, company right now looking at how we can leverage um, GPT-4 and equivalents to help us um, summarize um, ideas more easily, so synthesize mm -hmm. insights from the community because the time pressures are so great, and also help um, uh, help with those insights that could help us connect people better. So we really, it, it's absolutely critical to get right. It's absolutely critical that three point to unlock that 3.5 trillion, but it's a hard problem. And I think we still, we've done some really great work. We see great connections, but we are um, at the foothills of where that can go. The one thing I'd say just to add to that is there's a, there's an interesting relationship where you are probably most likely most of the time to get most value from better connections in your own government or from analogous governments. So you get a lot of sharing as a result between, for example, Commonwealth countries. So um, we are headquartered in the UK, but Canada, in fact, is our largest user um, base in the mm. world. So we have tens of thousands of Canadian public servants and, and huge engagement in Canada. And then we have a, obviously a lot in the UK, a lot in Canada, um, sorry, a lot in Australia, New Zealand, so countries that have similar systems. And it's great to foster sharing between them. And we're building on a lot of sharing protocols and practices and cultures that already exist. But you also want to engineer those um, more uh, left field um, connections with countries that aren't like you. Because whilst for the majority of the time they might not be relevant, that's also where you get the completely killer insights, the ones that... Yep help reframe thinking about something. And, and digital is a fantastic example of that because, you, you know, you, if you take wealthy countries and poor and middle-income countries, which tend to not be comparable often on a policy basis um, in some respects, those low- and middle-income countries are also some of the greatest leaders on digital. And I think mm -hmm. we need to see more humility in wealthy countries looking looking to um, looking further afield for um, insights. I mean, India is an obvious one with, with Adha um, and there, there are numerous others. Well, and, and, you know, we often kind of see that they, they've got, there's this advantage actually in, in countries, if you want to frame it, that they're kind of coming to digital a little bit later, is they don't have all the legacy around yeah. legacy technology, legacy policies, legacy processes. And I think you're absolutely right. They have that ability to almost kind of look at things with a bit of a clean slate and, and be able to leapfrog uh, in some cases on that. Well, and, and this kind of gets to one of the questions I wanted to ask you, because, you know, you've got this kind of unique global learning platform. You've obviously seen people from from you know as you mentioned you know 100 plus 160 countries around the world who've interacted 
I mean, do you have a sense that there are some some universal lessons, you know, amongst those four pillars that kind of apply everywhere? Or to what degree is is kind of effective learning in this space or effective skills development context specific? Because um, this is even even within Canada, we face this question sometimes. Or sometimes people say, you yeah. know, the federal government is so unique from the provincial government, so unique from municipal government, and and I'm torn on that, right? Because obviously, like context matters, but I, I do wonder if sometimes everybody kind of thinks their context is special and there there may actually be some universal you know skills and approaches that are that could be yeah. applicable anywhere yeah I think the answers are yes and yes yes they're universal approaches and yes there's context specific and and one of the things we we grapple with a lot is how do we um, how do we navigate that and how do we help people share the stuff that's most universally applicable and then foster the context specific stuff more through community sharing and exchange of tacit knowledge, et cetera, because they, they are right. different ball games. Um, I think first at a, at a principal level, we are seeing more universal approaches stemming from more work being done around um, digital and data, especially in government, because those principles are often more fungible, right? They, they just you know digital translates more than other things often translate once you've got um you know digital infrastructure is that much more flexible than other policy infrastructure right. so i think there's a trend towards more um universal principles um if you then um or transferable knowledge uh if you then look at what what else is shared it's certainly true that um you know learning tends to sit at this has tended to be looked at in isolation of culture, and it cannot be. The extent to which learning sticks and is able to be applied is incredibly culture dependent. Um, so you can look at your, you know, your infrastructure um, in terms of your, your policy infrastructure. Um, if you're looking at how able you are to apply. Um, digital innovations, you might look at your pre-existing digital infrastructure, which can be a legacy drag, but it can also be an enabler. But if you don't look at your cultural infrastructure, right. um, you are going to be really a, a bit hamstrung and constrained. Yeah. So that's really important. And and that is that is the same, right? There are certain principles around culture, like willingness to share, collaboration, um, value of learning that's held high in the organization where you've got real leadership um, from the top mm -hmm. and you need that everywhere. Um, then I think some of the, some of the things that are clearly um, more context specific scale matters a lot, right? We've seen how small countries are able to often launch um, innovations incredibly effectively and swiftly, yep. you know, just look at uh, New Zealand, the Nordics, um, there are plenty of examples of these like high functioning, mm -hmm. agile countries, which are partly as a product of being well-run governments in many cases, but it's also just scale. And then you look at what's needed at, at the scale of a country like India or Brazil, it's just a different ball game. So that is, that is kind of an obvious one. When you're looking at digital um, there's a, you know, we're doing a lot of digital programs and we're looking at a lot of what works in wealthier countries versus emerging countries. And definitely your starting infrastructure is, mm -hmm. is a, is a really, um, critical, can be a critical impediment. 
one other thing. I think, um, you know, the risk aversion, inherent risk aversion in a uh, country back to culture makes a big difference around what sticks and what doesn't. Um, I don't want to point fingers because we sort of in the business more, uh, we try to focus on celebrating what's working in government, but there are definitely some countries, if you look at, uh, say, digital as an example, who talk a lot about wanting to change, but just can't get themselves over the initial hurdles and the, the risks and the changes <laughs> that are required. Well, no, I mean, listen, I'm, I'm happy to point some fingers and say, I think this is one of the challenges we have in Canada, right? I mean, I think we do in the public service here, certainly from my experience, right? And I've seen there is that risk adverse culture in some ways. I, I might, in the Canadian context, I might also might call it a bit of a kind of, you know, paralysis by consensus culture where, you know, we tend to be very conciliatory. We want to get everybody's input into things, but it makes it very difficult, particularly in kind of a, a federated government like we have with federal powers, provincial powers and municipal governments playing a pretty big role in some areas. It's actually very, very difficult yeah. to bring everybody along at the same time. And I do find that I think that kind of in, in our context here in Canada tends to actually slow things down quite a bit. Yeah, I find the Canadian example completely fascinating because on the one hand, at the at the level of the individual public servant, you know, witness the hugely high adoption we've had on apolitical, even though we don't have a physical office there, for example, right. there's so much appetite, this openness. Our, our Canadian members are some of the most enthusiastic. They share um, uh, frequently. Um, they show up to stuff. But then they also complain disproportionately about how their government's not doing <laughs> enough on digital. So there seems, to be, there seems to be appetite at the individual level, but maybe something structural holding the, the, the government back writ large from making big changes. And perhaps that's inherent in the, in the federated um, model. Well, and, and, and it's interesting because one of the things I wanted to ask you about was, you know, obviously underpinning a lot of a lot of the work that you're doing is around teaching public servants how to be innovative, how to sometimes be disruptive, you know, in these systems. And certainly from that cultural aspect, if you think about the culture of the public servant, um, you know, I can speak to the Canadian context with some confidence, but I think this is generally true in a lot of places around the world. You know, governments tend to value stability, right? And and yeah. And sometimes the types of personalities that get attracted into government, you know, will value stability. And, and even with kind of that Canadian slant on it, you know, the we, we always think about, you know, the U.S. Uh, Constitution talks about, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The Canadian equivalent is peace, order, and good government, which right there kind of, you know, shows yeah. the, the distinction. And so I, I wonder from your experience, I mean, can you teach public servants how to be disruptive, how to be innovative, particularly when they may be in a culture, you know, within their organization that actually values stability more? more than those traits? Yeah. So short answer is yes. The more nuanced answer is I think the culture tends to be more of a constraint than the people. So it, it is true that government's hiring processes and reputation might attract a slightly less risk-averse crowd than you know mm -hmm. your average group going into tech, certainly. But what we tend to see is Public servants tend to be ahead of their governments when it comes to risk. And I'll give I'll give two data points around that. Um, the first is sort of on innovation in general. And it came and we got it in early the early months of COVID when we surveyed our membership on what um what was worrying them most as they contended with this unprecedented crisis. And at the top of the list, number one, and no surprises here, was how do you protect vulnerable 
um, vulnerable citizens, people during COVID. But second on the list, and this did surprise us, was how do we preserve the innovations that have been forced through as a result mm -hmm. of COVID? So there is real, and, and I think part of the issue with disruption is we see it as binary. We either slow or super disruptive. It's not like that. There's a whole spectrum. And I think there's a massive amount of appetite towards the middle of the spectrum from individuals right. in the public service to do things faster and better. Um, and then just the other survey we ran, which was really illuminating on this, was asking public servants about um, climate and the appetite for individual public servants to do more on climate than their departments was were doing, and this was people in core climate roles and in mm -hmm. adjacent roles, was huge. It was way, I can't, I can't, I don't have the exact figure to hand, but it was like staggeringly high. So here you have, again, the individuals saying, we want this, come on governments, get with the, the picture. Um, so you certainly can, and I think the way to, to do it, so you've got that sort of underlying appetite, you have to unlock senior support, that, that really matters. You have to shift the culture along with the skills. So when you're teaching something like digital, you have to think of all the adjacencies, right? How um, more agile ways of working. And I know this is, you know, I'm 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 talking to one of the experts on this, but it it's non-obvious to many people. But that the sort of soft surrounding enabling environment of digital and digital ways of working. Um, are absolutely critical. And then there are also, you know, there are a whole bunch of, of tactics that allow for more flexibility with lots of safeguards, you know, witness regulatory sandboxes, for example, um, small projects with containment. There's always a risk of pilotitis, one of the, you know, serious government um, diseases. But uh, for the most part, they're, they're ways of, of mitigating um, the, you know, the, the impact and the risk. And I also think risk is talked about in the wrong way in the public sector often because think about the risk involved in these huge overruns of projects that are done in the most conservative way where you procure over a two-year period and by the time mm -hmm. you've procured something, the technology is out of date. You know, that has its own yep. risk. It's not a risk for which people get fired, but it's definitely a risk. Um, and I think there's there's more and more of a, a, a realization of some of those kind of um, hypocritical oversights in, in the, the public sector. Yeah, it, it's, you know, I, I often kind of describe it as um, it's not that the government doesn't take risk. It takes huge risks that often don't pan out, but it distributes the risk so that no one individual person is accountable for it, which I think is part of why it gets to perpetrate and, and kind of move on. Um, and, and Robin, I'm interested to pick up on something that you were just talking about, because I'm, you know, obviously this area around how do we move our organizations and transform them is is core to the work that I do and the things that I care about a lot and, and have seen this kind of both from the inside and outside, I often think a lot about, you know, structures and incentives within our organizations and how those either constrain yeah. or enable us. And, you know, I like this term you used of, of pilotitis, because I see this often, right, where government's actually pretty good at being able to, to do pilot projects, but it's not 
very good at being able to scale those pilots, right? When something works, when an innovation works, I think government, frankly, just doesn't have a lot of the toolkit to be able to scale pilots and mainstream them. Have you seen any promising approaches about that or, or, or any, you know, any examples uh, of governments who've kind of done a good job of that or, or, or approaches that you've taken kind of the, the training methods that a political takes to kind of help people to be able to kind of get over that, that pilotitis, as you call it? So I can't, I can't draw any nice, I wish I could draw a nice direct line between um, the training and the benefits we're seeing from it and um, an example of where that's been avoided. But certainly what we observe is um, one of, one of the critical things you can do at the front end to avoid these projects being gummed up at the level of the pilot and getting no further is, um, around, and it sounds, you know, it sounds so jargony, but stakeholder engagement, because for Mm -hmm. systemic change in government, you need so many people on board and you need them more than ever when things start to go wrong. And inevitably any big ambitious project goes wrong at some point. So there's often this critical phase where um, the right engagement hasn't been done early, the right people haven't been asked, and then you get into any kind of trouble and it becomes a, an albatross, you know, something that no one wants to touch, and then it, it dies and gets dropped. Um, so I think consulting people who might be affected even tangentially mm-hmm. early on is, is really critical. This comes back to silo-busting um, better networks because you do that inherently. Um you know, building uh, building better pilots too. It's not just, I think some of pilotitis is a result of the wrong kind of pilots where you don't think through the scale phases uh, correctly. But, you know, this is a very hard systems problem with lots Absolutely. of complexity. Well, you know, as as I often say, if if this was an easy problem to solve, somebody would have solved it already, right? And and I might just add to your list, which I which I agree with everything you just said, Robin, is is also the ability to shut down things that aren't working. I think that's the other challenge we often have in the public sector is once something gets created, they tend to kind of linger, right? And we don't actually have good instincts to kind of say, you know what, this didn't work, and and we're going to sunset it and and kind of focus our efforts elsewhere. Yeah, and I think that's a that's a great aspect of digital culture, which should be infused um, w- well beyond anyone working on on digital. And actually, that's one of the, the most exciting things we see right now about um, when we we look at training around digital. So many of these digitally enabling cultural traits and skills and practices are so relevant to everything else in government. Um, you know, this ability to learn fast, cut your losses, um, you know, be more flexible, uh, be more collaborative. Um, so there's definitely, uh, I, I think, um, definitely a lot of transferability there. Absolutely. So, Robin, you're you're about eight years into this journey with Apolitical, and I wanted to ask you a little bit about, you know, what's next and, and, and where you see Apolitical going next. And, you know, curious, number one, if anything has particularly kind of surprised you from the last eight years, you know, if you kind of were to think back as to what's worked or maybe what hasn't, and, and interested, you know, what's kind of next as you carry your mission on? Is, is there anything kind of on the horizon that you're particularly excited about uh, that Apolitical is going to be tackling in the, in the months and years to come on surprises 
one of the, the biggest ones has been how much culture, the, the, the culture of a global community matters to public servants because you've got this um, interesting dynamic where governments are so different. They, they run differently. The country contexts are different. But the people attracted to the public service often share very um, similar principles and, and motivations. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we've seen is just enormous um, valuing of that connectivity between different places. And where it came out most strongly without um, naming a country name, one of the, uh, a very large country that uh, got a populist leader uh, who was at the leadership level very against kind of collaboration and there was a lot of nationalist talk and all the stuff we associate with populism. Um, So we expected that government to, if anything, be much more disengaged um, from our work. And what we saw was the moment this person was elected, a huge surge in signups to Apolitical from this country. Hmm. It's been sustained since. And we we interviewed some of our new members. And what they told us was, we're so we're so angry at the leadership and we need um, to stay motivated during this period, connections to a global community of people who are like us, um, to connect us to what we stand for and what we think will ultimately emerge back in the country. So that's been been really interesting. We've had some cracker quotes over the years t- to this point too, like um, a, a Canadian policymaker actually wrote to us and, and said, you know, in an era of democratic recession, apoliticals like Prozac for us um, <laughs> depressed policymakers. I, so I love that one. I'll, I'll take it. I'll be the Prozac. Going forward, um, we are thinking a lot about scale for one thing. You know, we've, we've reached 200,000 people directly, many more indirectly, but that is just the beginning of the ginormous um, global uh, public sector. So scale, um, how do we run our programs, our training programs at a greater scale too? And how do we incorporate into them culture change um, and workforce transformation? So we, we've we recently um, launched um, on, on this, in this vein, a, a program on digital excellence um, with the UK government initially, but we've, we've engaged lots of governments, including the Canadian one on um, inputting into the design. And the ambition of this is to train tens of thousands of public servants a year in the government um, on all aspects of digital and across um, levels. So from senior down to the more implementation level. And the early results are just incredibly um, exciting. There's a lot of enthusiasm around that. And that we've done in collaboration with the London School of Economics, and um, EY in the UK and the government being deeply involved in it. So we we hope to do more work around that. Um, on I just want to call out climate specifically. It's one of our pillars, but we've recently leaned into this very um, strongly with something called the Government Climate Campus, which it has an ambition to train 50,000 public servants in the next three years um, on climate skills. So these are in core areas like decarbonization, but also adjacent areas, climate and mental health, um, climate and equity, etc. And that's um, Oxford University is one of our founding academic partners. Um, the Bezos Earth Fund has backed that. So that's very exciting. Yeah, climate is something we all need to be working on. Yeah. And then just f- final note, um, going forward, leveraging 
technology, um, more AI, more to work at, to enable that scale ambition. And just to keep celebrating the fantastic people working in government and not to lose sight of all of that. A lot of what we do relies on product and technology and we've got to get that right. But so much is also the human side. It's just recognition of yeah. brilliant people. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm fond of saying, you know, we often think about government as being this kind of, you know, mechanistic um, uh, type of, of organization, but it's actually made up of human beings, right? And, and, and culture change and transformation at its core, I think, has to be a human endeavor. Um, and so... Very exciting about, you know, the work that you're undertaking and, and where Apolitical is going. And, you know, personally, I can say it's been a, a great contribution to the global movement around, you know, government modernization. Robin, as we as we kind of close off the conversation and anything else that, that you want to, 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 to bring up or, or kind of closing words to, to leave with the audiences uh, as, as we think about, you know, how they can all, you know, many of our listeners are public servants themselves, how they can kind of, you know, personally be able to, to build up their skill knowledge and, and modernize their work as well. Well, I just want to um, end on a note of gratitude, really. First of all, gratitude to any Canadian listeners, because as I as I said, um, you are part of our most, the one of the most inspiring parts of our membership because you engage so much in what um, we're doing. So I would invite you to, to do that even more. Um, we're, we're launching new initiatives all the time. Some of them ha are paid, but a lot of them, um, as you'll know, are, are free. And we also very open. We're, we always work community first. So if you see a gap, if you are, you know, have a pain point in your organization and you'd like, we really need to um, upskill and this, change the way we learn on this. We, we're always open to collaboratively designing things. We've worked a lot with ca Canadian organizations already. So thank you for your engagement. Thank you for your service. Thank you for keeping our team optimistic. It's why we have brilliant people joining Apolitical because they're so inspired by the people we serve, who serve the public. And then just, um, I guess, a, a thanks to you, Ryan, and watch out, um, watch this space because we are trying to find Apolitical and um, Think Digital are trying to find ways to collaborate. So hopefully we'll, we'll cook something cool up soon. Absolutely, which I'm very excited about. Um, and and Robin, for for listeners who may not be part of a political network yet or on the platform, um, if they want to join the network and get in touch, are they best to do that through a political's website? Absolutely. So it's apolitical.co.co, and it is free for any public servant anywhere in the world uh, to join at any time. Wonderful. Robin, thank you so much for taking the time today. It's been a great conversation. Really appreciate having you on the show. Thank you. So on today's episode, we asked the question, can we teach innovation? And is this a skill that public servants need to learn? I think the answer is a resounding yes. I wouldn't be in this business if I didn't think so. And I think one of the really interesting observations from Robin is that individual public servants are in many ways more innovative and more risk-taking than the institutions that they serve. Certainly, I felt that when I was in government. And if we're going to tackle the big issues of our time, climate change, social and economic inequities, the crisis of confidence in democracy and our institutions in the public sphere, we've got to find a way to let the passionate people working in government unleash their potential. So what do you think? Reach out to us at letsthinkdigital.ca. 
use the hashtag Let's Think Digital on social media, or you can email us at podcast at thinkdigital.ca and let us know what you think about today's episode and the topics we discussed. If you're watching this on YouTube, make sure to hit those like and subscribe buttons. And if you're listening to us on your favorite podcast app, be sure to give us a five-star review afterwards. And remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please help spread the word. Let others know about this podcast who might be interested in it as well. Today's episode was produced by myself, Wayne Chu, Mel Han, and Aislinn Bournet. Thanks so much for listening, and let's keep thinking digitally.